HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by Cabot Creamery. Proud to be a dairy farm family-owned cooperative for more than 100 years. Learn more at cabotcheese.coop. That's cabotcheese.coop. This week on Meet and 3, we're looking at things that have changed and things that are still in flux. From mothers balancing new lifestyles to the social stigma surrounding pumpkin spice. You got rid of the star rating system and talked about, like, I'm not going to use the word ethnic when I talk about food. They recognized that safety was our motivation, and, and they were very you know, receptive to the changes, understanding what we were trying to accomplish. A cupcake or a piece of bacon or a glass of rosé is not inherently gendered. Tune in to Meet and 3 HRN's weekly food news roundup, wherever you listen to podcasts. So my guest here is Kevin Mitchell. Kevin and I go way back, uh, probably about 10, 15 years. And Kevin's bio is pretty extensive. Uh, he's the culinary, uh, he's an instructor, first of all, which I give him a lot of credit for. Teaching uh, people how to cook is the most difficult thing in the world to do. Uh, he's also on the national board of Slow Food, member of the Southern Foodways Alliance. He's a uh, I ambassador for Charleston and South Carolina Food Ambassador and a member of the Culinary Institute of America Diversity Board. He's also, like I said before, a great friend of mine, and I'm really proud to have him as one of the first guests of Soul by Todd Richards. So welcome, uh, Kevin Mitchell, my good friend and pal. Afternoon. How are you? I'm doing well. So <laughs> let's think about this. Was it at uh, in Jacksonville? Uh, we first met uh, with Joe Rando, Erica, uh, Dwayne was there. Yeah, well, we met we met before. I think we met at the like the inaugural Atlanta Wine and Food oh, Festival right. at the opening party dinner, whatever that was. Um, that's where we met face to face. But we had been, you know, through social media, of course, following and kind of talking. But I think that was when we first met face to face. 
Um, I, re I remember that, that, you had uh, that uh, Burberry spice that you still won't give me the damn recipe <laughs> for it, you know? <laughs> I'll, I'll send it to you. <laughs> yeah. I, I've been trying I to get was, I was <laughs> just using that the other night, actually, um, in here cooking, so. Mm -hmm. I remember that. And you did a, a seafood dish, if I, if I remember correctly. Yeah, it was, um, well, yeah, we did uh, did scallops, uh, right, right, Burberry right. spice okay. scallops, and yeah. um a um, salad of uh, black eyed peas and mango. It had a little cumin, some orange, and, and other things like that in it. And then uh, uh, did that uh, toasted toasted uh, pistachio and orange peel garnish oh, yeah. with that. Yeah. Uh, with you being in, in Charleston, uh, I really wanted to, and you know, I'm in Atlanta, and though we're in the South, we're still worlds apart. Uh, well, what's really what's happening in Charleston? What's happening with black restaurant scene or black chefs in Charleston right now? Um, <laughs> I I won't I won't say non-existent, um, but we do have a few. Excuse me, of the old standbys, you know the the Gullah restaurants that are here, you know Bertha's Kitchen, Martha Lou's, um, Hannibal's, so on and so forth. Um, those are still holding on um, through through, of course, the pandemic. Um, but you know, you you know this here in Charleston, as far as um, other restaurants, there's a huge lack of um, black representation of executive chefs running some of the better restaurants in the city, and that's that's been somewhat of a problem here. I mean, I've been living here for 12 years, so it's it's still kind of ongoing through the pandemic, through, uh, of course, the, the death of George Floyd. A lot of the restaurants here, a lot of the black chefs or black caterers are starting to get a little bit of a little bit of traction. Um, but like with anything, it's still not enough. I mean, we're still still very invisible um, in the culinary landscape, specifically here in Charleston. Do you think that is because of finance? Uh, is it because of uh, an insular uh, system in Charleston? Uh, do you think it's because of uh, lack of appreciation for Gullah uh, cuisine or lack of knowledge? I know BJ, of course, is the, you know, the, the uh, BJ Dennis, the greatest ambassador of it. Uh, but then we also see that, you know, Chefs have made rice culture popular, which is basically out of Charleston as well. So do, what is the factors that contribute well, <clears throat> to this lack of visibility, lack of restaurant ownership, uh, in your opinion? Well, I think it's it's a, a combination of a lot of different things. I mean, we've always talked about the lack of capital. Um, that's always one of the most important things here. Um, you know, rents. Here in Charleston, and on some of the better streets where the restaurants are, are astronomical. Um, and I just think, and this is for me uh, throughout the country, it's just uh, you know a lack of people really knowing where the black chefs are, um, not necessarily wanting to invest in a black chef to to either own a restaurant. Or even you know be a, be an executive chef and run run the kitchen. So I think it goes you know many many different ways. Um, we can have you know longer conversations about 
any any of those reasons as to why. And you know, we we've speak to other people in the industry, of course, you know, our white counterparts, and some of them have been very candid and say, you know, it's 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 capital, um, <clears throat> it's a lack of you know that proverbial question, where are the black chefs? And we know where we are, but is it a thing of are they actually looking? for us and that is a major problem as well you know um you know we've had this conversation you know mm-hmm. both uh, in public and in private about where we are and we see uh in the last two years or three years you have mashamba bailey uh mm-hmm. edward jordan nina compton of the world uh win you know beard awards and we see progress mm-hmm. yes. um, in in that aspect of it but we don't necessarily see progress in restaurant ownership. And to, to your point, it does come down to finance. But still, you know, what is the future of Charleston's dining scene without more black chef or black restaurateur involvement? Well, one thing I see, you know, which is which is a very sad thing. I mean, in Charleston, you know, we have a lot of there's a lot of gentrification going on and a lot of those restaurants that I mentioned earlier you know of course are small smaller restaurants they're you know considered you know could could be considered mom and pop restaurants and those are those are dying off slowly and I think you know we mentioned BJ I think with BJ you know being that ambassador he's opening the eyes of people um, to you know really give some respect to those specific restaurants. Um, but, you know, it definitely goes back to, you know, gentrification neighborhood, people moving into specific neighborhoods or, you know, we have places downtown where, you know, the only grocery store in the area is, is closed down. And now those people that live in that area have to find another place to, to, um, to purchase food and almost turning into, you know, a food desert. Um, but, I think the the nature of the restaurant business as a whole, you know, it's hard to say, you know, the pandemic has definitely affected a lot of the restaurants here in Charleston. They, you know, of course, have been closed for many months. They reopen. Um, one of the staff members, you know, catches, you know, COVID. And then next thing you know, they have to shut down the restaurant again. So a lot of that stuff is just really up in the air. And you know, my hope is, you know, of course, through my work being a, a chef instructor and, and inspiring young African-American students to to go out there and, and do their thing and open up their own places. And, you know, it's we definitely talk about capital, but, you know, there's we can we can we can overcome that. We can, you know, fund our own projects and, and do many great things. As a culinary instructor, I mean, you see minds uh, at the young age of of learning how to cook. And we both know that cooking is something that you continuously learn, but you can, you know, people straight out of high school, some yeah. even older, some out of the military coming back. Uh, what is the, the, the great part about being an instructor for you? One definitely is seeing one of my former students go on and, you know, 
do great things, start their own businesses, you know, run run kitchens throughout not only Charleston, but throughout the country. Um, you know, and I have a lot of really great success stories of students who have gone on and, and done some really great things. And that that is one of the most important things for me to see and to be involved in as an instructor. Um, but short, more short term in the classroom is just seeing that student when they finally, you know, when that light bulb finally clicks on and they really are starting to understand what this business is about. I mean, you, you mentioned I, I do get um, a combination of different students from different backgrounds, different ages, um, coming from other, you know, other careers. And the younger generation, um, it's, you know, they're, they're, of course, media driven and they, they watch Top Chef and they watch Hell's Kitchen and they watch all these shows, which, which are great. Um, but when you don't really understand that most of that is all about the entertainment factor in the program, you know, it's, it's hard to kind of get those younger students to really come back down to earth and, and not, you know, have this and not that it's a wrong, a, a bad dream for them to have to be the next top chef or to be the next iron chef, but to also, you know, let them understand that, you know, it, it takes a lot more than, you know, being able to cook to have a TV show on the Food Network or even to be a contestant on 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 these shows. I mean, it's you know, it's just more than that. And, you know, some of the greater students that I have are those who um, are older. They may be career changers. Uh, we definitely you know, our school definitely is extremely military friendly. So we do get a lot of. Um, students who come from the military and they come in and, you know, through their military background, they are, I guess, more equipped to really understand the regimen of being in school. And then, of course, just to understand the regimen of just being a chef and, and showing up on time and being in proper uniform and, you know, <clears throat> and being prepared for class and having your recipes and, and reading the recipes and having your mise en place. So I mean, it's just a lot of different things. But those success stories are always, always great for me to see, you know, when a student comes back and says, chef, you know, I'm, you know, I'm the executive chef here, or I just had, I mean, you remember, um, Davin, right. Davin, yeah, Davin, yeah, he, um, he and his wife just started a catering business not too long ago. Um, and you know, she actually went and got her culinary and pastry degree as well. So, and they're doing, you know, they're, you know, things I'm sure slow, through the pandemic, but they, they jumped out there and started their own business. And that is a great thing. He was, you know, you've worked with him. He's a great, great, great guy, definitely talented and really understands, you know, what it takes to be in this business. You know, the reason why I asked you that question is because a lot of times the stereotypes of things, you know, they say, well, you know, chefs that can't really cook, um, are, are <laughs> they teach. Yeah. Right. They teach, you know, which is the biggest fallacy in the world to me because we all are teachers uh, as chefs. We we are uh, teachers, uh, parents, uh, social workers, uh, instructors, tax accountants, you know, all those things. And to just say that just because you're an instructor, you get dismissed out of the culinary field of being or, or a culinary expert to me is, is absolutely laughable. 
Uh, I want to take a quick break right quick, Kev. Okay. Uh, we got to uh, have our sponsors uh, really speak for us right now because they pay the bills and we'll be right <laughs> back in a couple of seconds. All right. All right. All right. Cabot Creamery has been making the world's finest dairy products for over 100 years. Cabot's award-winning cheddars and other dairy products stand apart because of their farmers' tireless dedication to quality and freshness, caring for their animals, and to healthy land and a sustainable future. More than a century after they started this journey, Cabot's farmer owners still know what matters most. Family and community the simple truth that we're stronger together than we are apart. That delicious products are the reward of a job well done. That when you love what you do this much, that the best is always still to come. Okay, so we're back with my great friend, Chef Kevin Mitchell in Charleston. And Kevin, I want to pivot a little bit because I know that you have uh, been working on a book. Uh, I know that you're a culinary ambassador for South Carolina. Let's talk about that culinary ambassador for South Carolina. I mean, to me, it's really uh, a great thing to to represent a state, uh, something like South Carolina, but also a place that is steeped in history, both positive and negative, especially Mm -hmm. when you consider all the slave ports that were on that coast. Um, Tell me about, uh, you know, who asked you to be an ambassador of South Carolina and really what is the crust of what you're you're showcasing to the world? Yeah, well, the Chef Ambassador Program is a a program that is built with the um, state of South Carolina. companies or you know organizations like discover south carolina they do work with the governor's office and it's it's a appointed position so throughout the year you know chefs from what they do is they split up the state into four sections and each section of the state has a person that they are you know they are the ambassador to and it of course it makes there's four of us so through the nominations throughout the governor and some of the other, you know, department of agriculture here, they get together, they go through the nominations and then they actually choose which chef from what part of the state is going to represent as a chef ambassador. And you are actually appointed by the governor. You go to um, the governor's mansion in Columbia and there's a big press conference and it's a complete total like, formal introduction and what we are supposed to do is basically preach the gospel of South Carolina food definitely South Carolina ingredients uh, because it is you know a partnership with the Department of Agriculture um, and what we do is we are normally without the pandemic pandemic we're supposed to travel and do events <clears throat> that um, and feature ingredients from South Carolina um, dishes from South Carolina, and just you know, once again, just preaching the gospel of of the beauty of the food that comes from 
our state and also, of course, the local produce. Um, now, because we can't necessarily travel, a lot of our work is done via social media. So, you know, normally we're asked to, you know, create a dish using a local product or a local <clears throat> ingredient produced or grown in the state and take pictures and create a recipe. And it's, you know, it's blasted all over, all, all over the social media. And uh, for me, it's a huge honor. Um, I am the first um, chef instructor to become a chef ambassador in the program, I believe started back in 2014, I believe. Um, so it's a great thing because for me, I can, I can use my voice as an instructor. Um, I'll definitely use my voice as a historian and, and talk about the historical aspects of the food of South Carolina, just like you said, also encompassing the, you know, the enslaved or formerly enslaved people from Charleston who, you know, who basically are the foundation for, you know, what we know today as Southern food. So it's a huge honor. Um, it's, it's an appointment that lasts for a full year. Um, actually for us through the pandemic, because we haven't really been able to do much, they are going to probably extend it throughout the year of 2021, uh, where hopefully we'll be able to do some more traveling. I mean, we do have a couple of events coming up soon. Hopefully that won't get canceled. Um, Euphoria in Greenville. Right, Euphoria, yeah. Um, so we're kind of getting ready for that. And we're supposed to be doing a James Beard dinner um, sometime in October. We're still waiting on some details for that, whether or not that's going to happen. But as it stands now, Euphoria is going to happen. We have a media brunch that we're doing on the Saturday of the event, and then Sunday we're involved with the Sunday supper. So, so, how, so how, how crazy does that feel? You know that the rest of the country is is you know basically closed. Uh, California <laughs> just closed again. Florida is in a state of open closure. You know they're a revolving door right now, but mm -hmm. South Carolina is wide open, and events like Euphoria, a, a wonderful food festival is happening, but you know, in the back of your mind, you think about COVID and and those things yeah. that have to go along with it. Uh, but you still sound like you're passionate about you know your your post as ambassador. What ingredients? I mean, do you just look for it to come from South Carolina that you use in your daily cooking? Well, we have there's um, of course there's a list of products that are produced here in the state. So if you're looking at, um, like actually the other day, a former student of mine works for Sally's Best and they create uh, simple syrups and jams and things like that. And it's what they call certified South Carolina. So it is a certified South Carolina product. Um, they sent me some free samples and what I'm going to figure out what to do with them and, you know, create a dish using some of those products and then, of course, post on my social media, specifically, you know, the Instagram and, and the Facebook. But I also use a lot of the other things, the local produce, some of the other ingredients. So for me, I look at uh, Carolina Gold Rice, Sea Island Red Peas. I use a lot of bene seeds and bene seed oil in a lot of those, those particular dishes. Uh, and not specifically for those dishes, but just what I would normally cook at home, too. So um, I have been, you know, I posted, I made a 
really nice peach cobbler cheesecake using some local peaches from a certified South Carolina grown producer. Um, even there's alcohol products that I will will use in in some of that as long as they are certified South Carolina uh, label um, company. So those are a lot. Those are just some of the things that that I use. But I'm you know I'm apt to use anything that's South Carolina and specifically for any event that's put on by the chef ambassadors. We have to use of course, certify South Carolina grown or produced products. I mean, what's crazy is that Georgia is called the peach state, but actually more peaches are grown in South Carolina yes. than it is, <laughs> you know, than in Georgia. Most people don't, don't know that as, as a fact. Uh, I believe that uh, like most things in the South is what you claim uh, may not be factual, but the fact that you claimed it first makes it your own, <laughs> you know? Well, yeah, and that can be said for something like, country captain i mean if you're you know you're from charleston you're claiming that country captain comes from charleston but if you're from savannah you're like no wait a minute <laughs> we here in savannah we created that that particular dish so it's you know it's it's amazing you know just the power that food has right I, I, absolutely uh, one thing you mentioned um you were saying you share stories of the uh slave and formerly uh, slave people, and I know your work with uh, David Shields, uh, correct? Mm -hmm. uh, uh, really, you all are working on a book that yeah. you have shared some of it with me, and I can tell you uh, from a person who's written a cookbook, but also as a nerd of, of books, that I can't wait for the full production to come out because I believe what you're explaining in the book is a little bit different than most, where uh, most people will talk about the downtrodden part of slavery and the downtrodden part of of a country that has uh, slavery as a long history. But you're talking about it in an aspect where there's some inspiration from overcoming the worst uh, uh, atrocity known to man through food. Can you share a little yeah. bit of what the book is going to be about with this? Yeah. And, including the know, title, because because I'm okay. not sure. I know you have a working title, but I'm not sure if the title is is fully fully vetted. Yeah. Well, and going back to the statement, you know, we are talking about sharing <clears throat> sharing the stories of of inspiration and things that are that are positive. That is kind of the main crux of of my work. Like I, <clears throat> you know, we can talk about the atrocities and the downtrodden things of slavery until we're blue in the face. But for me it's important to to share the stories of these cooks formerly enslaved who rose to own their own businesses in the city of Charleston, pastry shops, hotels, restaurants, so on and so forth. And they were able to create this cuisine um, even through their condition being in a, an enslaved person. So that part of the work is the most important for me. But as far as the book, it's called Taste the State, um, Signature Foods of Charleston and Their Stories. And we, Dave and I are calling it a guide to um, Southern food, specifically those things that are tied to South Carolina. So if you look at it almost like a dictionary or an encyclopedia, 
we have entries and there's about 82 entries and they're all listed in alphabetical order. And we write short passages about a specific ingredient or a specific dish that has some ties to, to Charleston. So when you read this book, you'll see an entry on okra, Carolina gold rice, field peas, you know, purlu, um, the um, Huguenot tort, the Lady Baltimore cake, things that have a connection to, to Charleston once again. And then, you know, in those entries, there's some some general information, maybe some agricultural stuff, where it grows or how it grows, um, when it was first seen, you know, in the public eye or when a recipe was first published in a book. And as far as the recipes, we're using a lot of old recipes that we're finding in newspapers from the 17 and 1800s. And then to kind of counterbalance those older recipes, I am creating some more contemporary recipes, things that, you know, people can get in the kitchen today. And, and you know, if you want to cook, you know, I have this dish called uh, peas and greens um, where it's, it's a take on taking peas, black eyed peas, and also use sea island reds and greens and, you know, the tradition of eating, you know, Hop and John and collard greens on New Year's Eve, but taking those two things and putting them together in one dish, but also elevating it by adding tomato and coconut and curry and, you know, a little turmeric, so on and so forth. So just want to offer something a little bit more contemporary. And there will be photos in the book and of some which of is, the photos. Which is a rarity for a cookbook, uh, especially from a historic standpoint. You know, there's photos in the book, which is great. <laughs> yeah, and we're actually taking photos ourselves. Like, as for, you know, because of the pandemic, you know, getting a photographer and so on and so forth. But some of the photos, um, for some of the things we'll, that I have posted on my Instagram will be in the book, which is great because I have control over it. I made the dish. Now I'm going to put it in the, in the book. And as we speak, we're still kind of going through. We have a good collection of photos. There's a few more we need to do, um, but we're pretty much ready for it to be sent to the copy editor. And the plan is to have it out sometime in spring of 2021. Um, I mean, I think that's a great time to, to release a book. Um, Spring is, especially after this uh, year of 2020, where this pandemic has definitely uh, showcased uh, the best and worst of the people. Yes. They're having, you know, a fresh start in 2021. But there's, there's you know, one final subject that I really want to discuss with you. And like I said, we, we have a, a long history together in, in food and understanding uh, things from not only a Black perspective, but from a worldly perspective. And I just want to hear your thoughts on what is the future of Black food uh, worldwide? And I put it in a caveat that I see where Nigeria is producing uh, uh, a modern version of its own cuisine. And I see in Brazil and more Afrocentric nations that there's more of a modern take on cuisines, just like you said, you know, you have recipes in your book from 1700s, 1800s, but then you're also putting modern takes on this. 
And I really want to get your perspective as a historian, also a person who wants to talk about the future of food. What is the future of Afro food, Black food in general? Well, I definitely feel that, the, I mean, for, for that food, for what we do, I mean, the future is bright. I mean, even despite, you know, the pandemic and, of course, some of the racial tension that's going on in the world today. And, you know, we I think we are really starting to really put ourselves on 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 these plates and really making people see what this food is is about uh, more, whether it's more tradition or more on a contemporary stance as well. You know, you know, like you said, we're embracing, you know, this new Nigerian thing. And, you know, you have um, chefs like Pierre Tam, who's representing, you know, Senegalese, and he's doing some modern takes and, you know, creating, you know, kind of like the quick, you know, 90 minute, um, microwave bag of Fonio, which is, right. you know, something that we probably would have never even thought of or even seen. I mean, it's absolutely delicious. I mean, I have it. I uh, made a dish with it. It is absolutely spe- uh, spectacular. And, you know, yeah, Pierre is doing, a, a you know, really and all the, you know, oh, the other, there's other chefs out there that are doing, you know, modern takes on, on our old Southern classics. You know, you mentioned Eduardo who's doing some good things, you know, um, hopefully, you know, he can reopen June Baby to what it was. Um, and, you know, he's embracing that. And, you know, other chefs like yourself and Dwayne Nutter and, and other, you know, we, I think our time is here. I think we need to really embrace it and jump on it. And definitely we need to continue to claim it. Um, you know, it's, you know, we, you know, you, we've talked about, you know, cultural appropriation of, of our food and of our culture. <clears throat> and it, it's time for us to to take those things back and and just and embrace it and be and be joyous in who who we are and what we have done. And, you know, and we've talked about, you know, as far as, you know, kind of growing up and going to culinary school and, and being in restaurants and everything's so Eurocentric and you know, not wanting to embrace our, you know, our natural heritage in our food. And, you know, once we, you know, and I know even I was like that when I got out of CIA, I was like, I'm, I want to be, you know, the next Thomas Keller and I'm going to create this five-star food. And it's going to be, you know, somewhat, it's going to be American, but still Eurocentric because that's, you know, what I feel I need to do. And we have to get, we have to get past that. And we just have to, you know, embrace it. And, you know, someone like Eduardo Jordan, who I think is really amazing that um, he's, he has chitlins on his menu. I, <laughs> Absolutely. And, and I've had them. And, <laughs> you know, and it's been a long time since I had, you know, only person that really cooks really great chitlins is my sister. And she yeah. hasn't made them in, 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 <laughs> in years, you know, and, and in most kids, don't know what that smell is, you know. I mean, yeah. they, you know, most yeah, kids. I know what that smell is. And it's like whoa. <laughs> they they just can't, like what is what is that? You know, you know. It's not yeah. like you boiling socks over there or something. Yeah. You know? Someone like him to do that in a white tablecloth setting, like that is, you know, that's, that's you know, that's 
And, and I know, I know, you know, that, that was going to be the last question, but it's going to follow up a little bit because you just brought up something that 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 he, you know, Eduardo's done it in a white tablecloth setting. But how much is that not remiss from a setting in Charleston, uh, where we prepare things in a white tablecloth setting and didn't get any credit for uh, for what we were doing, you know, considering only the history of Charleston. And, and with the plantations and everything there, it doesn't does seem like it's really that far removed from the history of our country, especially in an area like Charleston, that on a white tablecloth setting that that a, a black person was cooking the food for this, uh, uh, for the masses of people who came in, uh, but did, maybe did not get any credit for it before and he's, maybe is getting some credit for it now. Yeah, I think... I mean, it definitely, definitely starts there with, with the enslaved. I mean, they <clears throat> were the main people that were, were doing all the cooking, right? And then, of course, you, you move into where these cookbooks were coming out, um, and <clears throat> they were written by whites, but they were getting the recipes from, from the enslaved, right? And we been, have been cooking on white tablecloths since, since the beginning of time. Right. And I just think historically, you know, when food and be, being a chef and being in this profession becomes this white collar profession and where you can really make good money, depending on where you are and what you're doing. Of course, you know, and historically just whites rush in and then, of course, we're pushed out and the main people that were pushed out initially, of course, were women because they were doing mostly all the cooking. And then, of course, you know, black people in general were, were <clears throat> completely cooked out and uh, or, you know, kicked out. And I think that was one of the reasons why I wanted to be a chef. I'm like, you know, I six years old, I'm, I'm watching a television program about the Culinary Olympics and I see, you know, men in crisp white jackets and tall white hats and well, I don't see anybody that looks like me and they're preparing this beautiful food. I'm like, well, wait a minute. <laughs> where, where are people in this that look like me? And I think that's where I was so laser focused on wanting to, to be that type of chef, the Thomas Keller and so on and so forth. And at some point, you know, I'll tell you, my, my moving to Charleston really changed my, my thinking about that especially doing that Nat Fuller dinner and, and getting that research in and really understanding where it all comes from, my whole trajectory changed. The beauty about it all, uh, Kevin, is that, you know, that we have uh, a long history in food yep. from the most celebrated, you know, ground down of, of Southern cooking with Edna Lewis to our uh, living legend and Joe Rando, and then people like yourself, uh, who are not only uh, great historians of food, but also great ambassadors of food, especially through the lens of black culture. Where can everyone find you on social media? You can find me on Instagram and Facebook at Chef Scholar. Um, and you can also, you know, I also people people email me they want recipes so you can also email me at chefscholar at gmail.com. 
I, I truly appreciate you being one of the first people on this episode of Soul by Todd Richards. So, like I said, we have a long history in food. Uh, I consider you more than just a friend. I consider you family. And I am honored that you uh, brace these airwaves with me. And let's continue to celebrate uh, Black food, Black culture. But let's also continue to celebrate our friendship as family. Yes, definitely. Well, thank you for having me. I appreciate uh, it. It's my pleasure. Thank you, everyone, for listening in, and I'll talk to you guys soon. Thank you very much. Soul by Todd Richards is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network. Food Radio, supported by you. For our freshest content, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash heritageradionetwork. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, and more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be part of Food World's most innovative community? Subscribe to shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.